We're going to be in Matthew's gospel this morning. I invite you to turn to Matthew 6. Uh, We're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the title of my text this morning is, You Now Have to Choose. You Now Have to Choose. So hopefully that's a bit of a provocative title in terms of the times we're in. We have announcements that are regularly coming from pulpits about James Coates, who was imprisoned and incarcerated for gathering for meeting. And that was, you know, in our neighboring uh, country, Alberta, Canada, and uh, Grace Life Bible, similar size church, similar situation, and was separated from his family for uh, a couple months. And if you're following the news reports, he's out. Um, he's been released, reunited with his family. He'll stand trial in Mace. But we still have to keep praying for him, for that church, for that ministry. And how do you pray? Right? How do you pray? Like, oh, Lord, keep the persecution away. Keep us from going to jail. Well, we pray that in one breath, but in another breath, we think, come what may, uh, may the gospel go out. And so our prayers, I think, are shifting, where we're becoming awakened uh, to the reality of what really matters with the stakes being higher. In the 80s, I came up through the generation of the moral majority where the whole idea was to put political officers in positions for the morality of our country, right? For the, for the rightness of our country and being able to live as Christians peaceably in, in this environment. And we do pray for peace. Uh, First, Tim, uh, First Timothy 2 says we pray for our governing authorities. We, we pray that the gospel will go to them and that we'll be able to preach the gospel and live a quiet and peaceful life. But we also know that we are promised persecution. So walking that line is, is what we are facing. And we need to trust the Lord. Many of you, probably all of you received the same thing I did in the mail, a ballot to, to fill out and mail in and and vote, and I'm not someone who regularly pushes the just the act and responsibility of voting. I do think it's a privilege. I think it's a, a, a great thing for us to participate and have a voice in our country in terms of outcomes. But I would I would also ask you to pray for for God's will to be done. There will be candidates on in both parties or however many parties are represented that we may in time not agree with either one. We we literally have to vote our conscience, we have to do what we do as believers, but we have to trust God and we have to also um think in terms of who we're going to have to submit to and how what submission looks like and and how maybe we should pray in terms of what will be the best outcome for the gospel to go forth. I'm going to vote, but that's my prayer. What is the best outcome for Jesus to be exalted, for the word to go out and for us to be bold Christians in this in this world? We live in a sin-cursed world, but we have a sinless savior who saves people out of this world. Um in the midst of this world and then they're we go, we go to heaven. We go to another world one day, right? So we're excited about that. And my heart is to have the word of God lift us out of our circumstances at some level, put our eyes on Jesus, but then also as the word works in our current circumstances. So there's this word work that I'm always uh, praying for. And I appreciate the cultural push right now to shake us up. Uh, the culture calls for um, you know, the world to be woke, but really that's a superficial um, reality. What we're wanting is to be awakened to Jesus. And what matters to Jesus is what we find in our text before us. 
if in a word, I would say the church uh, needs to be awakened out of this word, which I would say is a sin as applied to a Christian, and that is the idea of being ambivalent, ambivalence. We're being shaken awake out of ambivalence. To preach to a culture, a church culture that's ambivalent is a hard task indeed. It's where people sit in their own catch-22 where they know the right thing to do, they know the right way to believe, they know the right Jesus to um, fall uh, in love with, and yet they're kind of on the fence and to be in the fence of ambivalence is uh, a difficult um, void to pierce. And the word of God does the work. But I'm thankful for the cultural shakeup and, and to be awakened to some of the higher stakes of, of the world we're living in and what the implications could be in the church. Because we need to not be ambivalent. We need to not have mixed emotions about Jesus' church. We don't need to be indecisive. We do not have, need to have contradictory attitudes. We don't need to be clinical schizophrenics. We, we need to have the poison of ambivalence um, purged from us. And the simple means of that is through these kinds of hardships. And it's really calling the bluff on hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy is out of style now. I mean, it really is. The bluff of that is um, being called and it is a fool's errand to be a religious hypocrite. Why come to church at all anymore, right? You can just um, sit back and relax and not gather. But we gather and we're gathering by live stream. We're gathering because... We don't want to be hypocrites. We're gathering in the name of Christ because we want to stand for something. We want to stand for truth, stand for Jesus. And so flying in the face of hypocrisy is Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. Pick up in verse 16. It says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward Uh, A hypocrite in church is someone who play acts, who's walking around and in our victim culture, which is, is, you know, being tested right now anyway, with some of the hardships uh, against Christians, uh, it, in a victim culture, people show up and and try to disfigure themselves to make themselves look spiritual on the outside, look self-deprived, look victimized, right? And look pitiable so that people will feel sorry for them and and will give them things. That's what Jesus is saying doesn't work. Persecution shakes that um, sin open anyway because uh, playing the hypocrite doesn't work in a persecuted culture. But hypocrites receive their reward in full here and now. uh, Verse 16 is saying you have your reward. What that means is if you're a hypocrite playing church, if you're stuck in ambivalence, your reward's now. You just cashed it in. It's a cash-in-now moment for you instead of the assurance of heaven. You want heaven's reward, which is eternal life and the knowledge that you're going there. Christianity is binary. You're either in or out. You're either true or false. You're either faking it or you are real. And it comes down to one question. As you worship the Lord, by whom do you really want to be seen? That's the issue. That's been the issue of chapter 6. Who's your audience? Do you serve an audience of one or is your religious audience uh, the people that are watching that can give you things or affirm you in ways that are superficial? And that's been the tone and tenor of the text. I just kind of wanted to finish these verses off with the thought of how Jesus, again, he's been peeling back the layers of religious performance, religious performance in giving, in praying, and then also in fasting or self-deprivation. Jesus assumes you'll fast sometimes. Uh, When you fast, verse 16 says, 
um, when it happens, when, you're, when you have a trial in your life, when, when life gets really hard, when life gets hard and you lose your appetite and you trade up for prayer and you're not eating as much, you're not sleeping as much, you could be fasting in your sleep and you pray to make up your sleep time, don't put on airs about that. Don't play the hypocrite with that. Be real with God. Don't try to be seen by others. Recognize you're being seen by your father. Verse 17 says, counteract this hypocrisy. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. If I had hair, you know, you, you put something in your hair. You, you just kind of, you know, don't, don't look disheveled on purpose. The word disfigure is actually used later in the text as destroy. Destroy. Don't destroy yourself walking around as a victim. Verse 18 that your fasting may not be seen, so you, you freshen yourself up, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. You shouldn't be carrying on in a way that shows that you're depriving yourself of anything. Uh, your trial in your life you should share with, with Christian friends, um, brothers and sisters, but you don't want to bring people in public display into your trial and try to take them on your journey as a wounded person. You want to instead trust the Lord and do that together, but you want to ultimately trust the Lord secretly and individually. And what happens? And your father who sees in secret will reward you, reward you with the assurance, the assurance of heaven. Um, God calls us to counter our pretense, to counter it, not parade it. The facade needs to stop. And the culture is driving us to face ourselves in real honesty and to do a gut check like I talked about last week, right? Are you in or are you out? Are you a facade? Are you faking it? Or do you truly know Christ? Do you truly have an individual and personal relationship with Jesus, where you walk and talk with Jesus. That's what really matters. That's what will drive you to stay um, accountable in church. It will drive you to give, pray. It'll drive you to fast. It'll drive you to serve if you were truly a Christian. No amount of coercion can um, get you to serve, really. No amount of coercion can get you to pray and give. These are private and personal decisions that you have to gut check and make. And the pressure's on to do it and be a true and genuine Christian. To be seen by God. Well, then in verses 19 and 24, we transition to a dividing line. Really, Jesus draws three lines in the stand in this text. It's a choose you this day whom you will serve moment. This is that morning. Don't be a divided Christian. Don't be a double-minded man tossed to and fro on the wind and the waves, um, not able to see straight, not able to um, cut a clear path. Double-mindedness, as John Bunyan put it, Mr. Two-Face. Don't be looking in two different directions at the same time. Have a single focus on the Lord Jesus. That's what we're talking about. And what the Lord does here to make this dividing line is he's basically saying you cannot, verse 24, serve two masters. One master is God and the other is money. Anytime you're talking about money, you're talking about something that identifies everything about you, your possessions, what you own, what you get to do or not do, how you're doing, your stress level, your pressure. Money defines not just the secular individual, but even a Christian. It defines everything about you. The question is, does it control you and are you bowing down to it? 
Is your security in God or your wealth? That's the question. Money in and of itself is a tool and it's a material. It's a stewardship. And money is not the issue, but it is your loyalty to God or money that is the issue. And the way to test it is, is your, is your security based in wealth or your security based in God, no matter how much money you have or do not have? You can fall prey to sins of money security if having a lot of money. You can reverse that, not have a lot of money, and your confidence can be completely in God, and you're trusting for daily provision. So it's not the money that's the issue. It's where you're placing your trust. Increasing pressures might threaten the money, might threaten your job, might threaten what you get to do or what you say about yourself, and you're going to have to dig deep now and think about these things now because we need to choose God over security. So if you're taking notes, Jesus is driving for singular commitment by drawing three dividing lines. Here's the first dividing line. This is his line in the sand. Jesus is saying kingdom or wealth, kingdom or wealth. What do you want? One or the other, kingdom or wealth, verses 19 to 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. World's wealth or security in God. Principles here are loosening your grip, which opens your eyes to heaven, or tightening your grip, which closes your heart to God. One or the other. Loosening or tightening. It's not changing the the money number in your bank account per se, but it's loosening or tightening. That's what we're talking about. What is your grip like? The Lord wants your grip to loosen as you steward people who fall prey to all kinds of covetousness and um, this kind of sin will mess themselves up. And we'll talk about that. Just to open up the text a little bit, if you look at verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. That word lay up could be the word store up. Treasure could be replaced with the word storehouse. Do not store up in a storehouse for yourself. That's, your life is not about storing up in a storehouse. That should not define you. It might be something that you're able to do. It might be wise to store some things up. It, it's good to have a retirement and a way to, to provide No problem. But if your life is defined by storing up in a storehouse, you need to take a gut check because the Lord wants us not to be placing our security in our storehouse. Doesn't want that to happen. People who compile things by habit are sometimes um, shown on these reality shows. I don't watch them, but some people do. And they're, they're really pitiful, pitiable stories where people will hoard and just have all kinds of things in their house where they can't even walk from the front door to the back door because they have so much stuff and they can't throw stuff away. They're unable to throw stuff away. And they're, they don't throw it away because they're, they've convinced themselves in their own mind that one day I'm going to need that. But oftentimes that day never comes. I mean, I have that miniature. I've got a little box. I've got a couple boxes. And, you know, they're just there. They're just keepsakes. They're things that remind me of my past or whatever. But there's a difference between that and just allowing for your heart to say, I need security here and now. I need to know that I'll have it no matter what happens to me. Desperation um, calls for intervention in those moments. 
Storing up, though, is, uh, is something that on a lesser scale can be seen in the way that we just look at our lives, the way we believe that we're going to need to save ourselves rather than trust the Lord and trust God. We have to be able to trust the Lord. Do you remember during the pandemic season when we would go to Target and we'd go to uh, Lowe's or go wherever and suddenly you're looking for toilet paper and the place looks post-apocalyptic. Everybody's, you know, kind of walking like this away from each other. Now, look, I understand we didn't know what we didn't know at that point, but we were wiping down things. I mean, it was, could you walk into your house with your shoes anymore and you wipe them down? And it was nerve wracking and scary. And we know that the sickness has taken lives and some things have happened and and we're sad for any lost life, but at the same time, uh, the, the whole revelation of how dependent we are on things is, was kind of first and foremost in my eyes, at least. A lot of people were storing things up in their garage, I and mean, we did a little bit of that, but um, there, there are degrees of, um, of doing that that can become harmful and, and can be an example of People who are putting their confidence in what they can stockpile, what they can hold onto, and, and they, they leave no room for God in the equation in terms of protecting and providing and all of that. And so that was our culture, and it was, uh, it was revelatory to me. What does Jesus say about this? He says, um, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. This is specifically saying don't treasure the word lay up can also be translated treasure don't treasure for yourselves treasures on earth in other words the whole issue is where is your heart are you just stockpiling to make it good for you here on earth that's what jesus is calling out it's not wrong to have money it's not wrong to have security not wrong to have some wealth not wrong to have to plan ahead not wrong to have supplies but is your heart invested there are you treasuring in your heart this treasured stockpile as your security back when when Jesus was saying these things there weren't banks um, there that, that I know of there you people did stockpile in their house but the point is that these stockpiles that we have are still vulnerable they're still fragile, just like a bank that could be robbed. And you know, credit cards and debit cards get skimmed. Suddenly someone's spending out of your own account. I've had that happen. Suddenly you're calling people and they're going, and Wells Fargo is like, is like open at one in the morning. They're like, sure, yeah, we get that. We've got optics on this. We'll fix it. Boom, 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 boom. Why? Because people steal all the time. People are doing this all the time. It's just normal to have that happen. And so how secure is our stuff really at all? Well, there's a couple internal intruders that Jesus identifies here. The moth, which is larva, so microscopic, you know, whatever's insects or whatever you call those uh, that are eating things that are, 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 there's a second law of thermodynamics that's going on here where stuff's in a state of atrophy and a state of entropy all the time. Stuff is... Um, degrading, it's degrading before our eyes, rust, that chemical reaction that's taking things. It's the idea of the car that drives off the lot and immediately loses 20% of its value and 65% in a year. It's, it's that kind of dynamic that is, should be before our eyes. We can't place our trust in our stuff. 
And that sort of idolatry flares up when you buy stuff with the wrong motive, right? You're buying it for self. You're buying it for instant gratification. You're buying it for some kind of security. You're buying it for some kind of status. All of those forms of idolatry feed the disappointment that you experience when things begin to break or shift or there's loss or it's gone. Or the money flies away with an unforeseen whatever that happens in your life. It's a misplaced motivation that Jesus is calling out and correcting here. You're treasuring things for earth or on earth, here on earth for now. Where moth and rust, something as simple as that is going to destroy it. There's that word destroy. It's the same word used in verse 16 of disfigure. It's destroyed. And where thieves break in and steal... The thieves back then were breaking in through mud walls and rock walls. If they want something bad enough, they're going to tunnel in to get it and just take it from you. No matter what you do to try to keep it, it can be stolen. Well, again, these sorts of threats are just put before our eyes. Science tells us that stuff is in an irreversible devolution, but all of that is the effect of sin in our world the chipping paint, the wrinkles, the arthritis, the things wearing out, all these things are unstoppable enemies that we see in our natural world and the assault from the outside. Nothing is really safe. That's what, that's what Jesus is doing here. He wants this mindset. And you've heard me talk about the, uh, the issue of presumption from Luke chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. Jesus said, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. All covetousness for one's life does not consist of the abundance of possessions. Oh, that we could just get to that mindset, right? Life is not about possessions. Are we all more spiritual than me? I think this is actually a real issue. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. It is in my heart. And life is not about possessions. It really is about people, right? It's about whom we love and, and reaching people and and using our resources in the right way. I don't want to get ahead of my sermon, but, but it's there. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And I'll store all my grain and goods and say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. For God said to him, But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All of the discussion about money possession, money love, covetousness, disappointment, buyer's remorse, it all goes away when your health is threatened terminally, right? Somebody could become terminal in a moment, and all of a sudden you just put all your wealth there. Hey, just take it all. Just liquidate it. Let's all just survive day to day. Because that person needs it. I love that person. That's what you know you would do, right? So the Lord is saying, don't live for that mindset of stockpiling, but live with the heart of stewardship, where you're a giver and you're investing not in earth, but in heaven. Jesus offers in verse 20 the one place you can invest where for sure your investment will have a yield. The one place where the second law of thermodynamics does not apply, the one place that there are no thieves, no thieves can enter up there, it's heaven. We invest in heaven, not on earth. Look at verse 20. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroys. It just doesn't happen. And where thieves do not break in and steal. What does this mean? What does it mean? Does this mean that I'm on a giving campaign suddenly and we're going to go into a three-week series on giving a church? Do I want you to give at a level where you are finding yourselves in financial straits? No, not at all. I wouldn't hold myself to that standard. I don't think the Bible does. We give as we are entrusted um, money and and we provide for our families. We're we're supposed to provide food, clothing, and shelter for our children, for our spouses, for ourselves. That's normal. So what does this mean? What does it mean to put your treasure in heaven, not on earth? Does that mean we shouldn't invest in ways to advance our money here? No, I think Jesus teaches that we should invest and be wise stewards. So it doesn't mean um, particular things in, in, in terms of giving to the church. It doesn't mean Jesus is not talking in particular to giving to a missions campaign or living on the edge. I do believe we're supposed to give. I believe Jesus says to give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Um, we're commanded um, in scripture, both in principle and by example, to give at the first day of the week, just regular, with regularity. We give as um, people in the church and uh, the Macedonians gave out of the wealth of their own poverty. They did give in the early days in the early church. We give re- with regularity out of that precedent, out of that command in scripture to sow and reap. But Jesus is talking more broadly. He's not just talking about a portion of your wealth. He's saying to invest all of your wealth in heaven. Not just part of it, all of it. Not just a tenth of it, all of it, or whatever percentage you give, all of it. Well, what does that mean? Are we just supposed to give it all away and do it that way and wonder where we're going to eat, how we're going to live? Doesn't the Lord provide for us to work so we can eat? Absolutely he does. If you don't work, you don't eat. Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Timothy 5.8. If you don't provide, you're worse than an infidel. You have to provide for your family. Jesus never condemned money. Um, he said that uh, render to Caesar what Caesar and to God what is God's. In other words, money even to a corrupt government should be given in terms of tax and submission in government. So we're supplying for the, the socioeconomic world that we live in. So how do we mesh this in our minds in terms of what Jesus is talking about where he's calling for us to invest our treasure in heaven, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What does he mean? Well, first of all, he's countering the ensnaring temptation of money love, the philarguria, which is uh, the love of money that that spawns all kinds of evil that 1 Timothy 6 talks about, verses 6 through 11. We're supposed to be content. We can't take anything out of the world. We didn't bring anything into the world. We need food and clothing. We should just be content with that. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Does it say those who are rich fall into temptation? No. Perhaps the godlier ones steward greater resources. I don't know. But it's the desire. It's the burning desire. Oh, that my goal on earth would be to be rich. That's, that's, that's where we're in the, you know, it's the Lord of the Rings, you know, where you're like, my precious, I want that ring, right? That'll give it, you know, that'll make me happy. And, and that lust and desire for power and what that brings turns you into Gollum. You can tell I'm reading a little bit of that stuff right now. Anyway, at least it's not on live stream. Oh, I guess it is. All right. Anyway, all that to say, it's, it is a temptation to desire 
to wealth and desire to be rich. But um, those who do it, listen to this, they fall into verse 9, a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving, you hear this desire word and craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, if you invest in earth and ignore the ones that you love and the ones that you love fall away from Jesus, wouldn't you pay all the money in the world to just bring them back? It's like if someone is physically dying, you're going to do everything you can do to support their life to, to keep them here. But in the same way, spiritually, we, we, we need our friends and family to love Jesus. And so it's, it, I, I think we just need to reprioritize why we spend the money that we spend. Why do we do it? But it starts with the presupposition of this. God owns it all. So in other words, God, godliness is not measured by how much you have or don't have. Godliness isn't measured by even how much you give or do not give. What Jesus is looking for is total loyalty, 100% loyalty, not your money, your loyalty. This is like the anti-sermon on giving, right? I, I'm, I believe in giving. I think we should give at church. But he wants you to hold all of what you have in your possessions open to him, and he wants your 100% devotion. That's what he wants. I mean, I'm going to read some texts. You know, I don't want your bulls. I don't want your oxes. I don't want your offerings. I mean, there are times where he's literally, he's commanded you to give and bring an offering in the Old Testament, but not with a wrong heart, not just out of religious ambivalence or hypocrisy. Just keep that. Why? Because God owns it all anyway. He owns this church. He owns the finances. He owns our country. He owns all the wealth. He, he, I'm going to I'm quote, well, I'll just quote it. I, I love it. It's 50, Psalm 50, verses 7 and t- through 12. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not to your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all the moves and all that moves in, in the field is mine. Listen to what he says in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. It's already all his. Everything's measured in terms of loyalty. Israel was defecting in Malachi 3. They were defecting. Their hearts were far from the Lord and they were They were not giving in temple tax. In other words, they weren't providing for the priest and the priesthood. And in Malachi 3.8, God says, will man rob God? Are you robbing me? The reason he can say that is because he owned it all. He owns it all. God's sovereign over everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So here the Lord is driving right to the heart. Because again, money, even for the Christian really determines a lot about how you feel about your day, how you feel this morning. Perhaps it shouldn't, but it does. It's a ruling mechanism in our lives that we have to submit and bring under subjugation to the Lord, right? And bring subject to him because he wants our first loyalty to be him. So how do we invest in heaven? Here's my mission this morning with the time remaining. I want to answer the question If we're not supposed to invest our treasure in earth, that doesn't mean you don't save. It doesn't mean that you don't 
um, provide for your family's needs. But what does it look like then to invest it all in heaven? What does a singular loyalty look like when you do that? We've got to pay bills. We've got to buy food, take trips. How do you make that all about heaven? Well, I'm going to put it to you as practically as I can. Spend your money. You know, invest in the economy, as the government's talking about, right? Um, buy food. Uh, go on trips. Buy clothes. But do it to win people to Jesus at the same time. Yeah, give some to church. Give to missions. But all of your money should be to win people to Jesus, Okay, i got to pay a bill. Well, I'm doing that to support my family, and I want them to know Jesus. They need clothes. Okay, I'm doing that. I'm providing for this because I love them, and I want them to know Jesus. Um, I'm, I, you know, we've got to make a decision about another car or selling a car or doing this. Do it with Jesus in mind and hearts. That's how we spend money. Again, I'm preaching to myself on this. The reason this is hot on my heart and there's any intensity is because I'm looking at me. I needed this rearrangement in my own thinking this week. And I just typed it and it kind of came to me. But how do we invest on earth uh, instead of on earth, but invest in a untemporal way, an eternal way for people, for Jesus? We're, we're doing it to win hearts to Jesus, not just through giving to missions. I think we should. We should equip people to go out and give the gospel. But you're on your own mission with your own money and your own stewardship, and you provide to win hearts to Jesus. That's what I think. That's what I think Jesus is talking about here, where you lay treasures up in heaven. Where is heaven? Well, heaven is eternal life. We are experiencing eternal life now. It's as if we're seated at the right hand of the Father now. And so we're, we're investing our lives in Christ and in his work. Wasn't that Paul's mindset all the time? He had a bank account. He had a bank account with Philemon, who he had won to Christ in Rome. And, or, or I'm sorry, Onesimus, that he won to Christ in Rome that was the fleeing slave. And he sent the slave back as a brother in the Lord to Philemon. And he said, if he ripped you off, if there was a loss of time in terms of what he was required to do, loss of work time, just put it against my account. Why did he have an account? Well, he was in jail, but he was in, under house arrest. That was the Lord's design so he could write a whole bunch. But he had a bank account, so just charge it to me. That was the mindset of a Christian. How do I spend my money? I spend my money in terms of the Lord Jesus, giving him glory. Whatever we do, eat or drink, do all the glory of God. And the mission of giving glory to God on earth is winning people to Jesus. Our kids, our grandkids, our brothers, our sisters, people in need, providing and giving. You make more so you can do more of that. That's the joy of money management as a Christian. Look at verse 21. For where, and I think this is the summary statement of what I'm trying to say. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where you're putting your treasure, how you're investing it is investing your heart in heaven. That's what it looks like. Again, go out and have a good meal. Go on a vacation, but do it with God and Jesus and hearts in mind. You ever have buyer's remorse? You ever vacate yourself out somewhere and suddenly you're not in your home anymore? 
And suddenly it's hard work to be on vacation and you start to get bummed and buyer's remorse for that. Well, just think about it in terms of I want to win my kids. I want to win my kids' hearts. I want to be a blessing to whoever I'm with or whoever I'm visiting. That's the heart motivation of investing your heart heavenward. It's the issue. The issue is not the item. It's how you're investing things for the betterment of other people. The Greek translation uh, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, was kind of beautifully written one place. Wherefore, listen to this, wherefore is the treasure of thee, there will be also the heart of thee. Yes, regular sacrificial giving at church is important, but all that we own needs to go to an untouchable, untouchable place. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. If we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. How do you sow bountifully if you don't have a lot? Just hold it all open and sow it in the Lord's work, which means provision, which means providing for your family, which means doing everything to the glory of God with what you have. You're not doing it for exaction. Verse 5, Paul was rebuking in 2 Corinthians 9, 5, leading up to the sowing reaping principle. He said, I thought it was necessary to urge you brothers to go on ahead and to arrange and advance the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing sacrifice and not as an exaction. We don't give to get. Kingdom currency is going to heaven and God's glory. And then God provides for all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He promises that. But don't give as an exaction. This is not some sort of Um, worldly investment scheme. Kenneth Copeland used to pass the plate and he would say, look, if you put money in, you're investing in your portfolio or your income will boost. It's not what we're talking about. Well, let's go to point two. Kingdom or wealth, point two, second line in the sand. Kingdom or wants. Now we're talking about the things that you don't have. Jesus begins to build a bridge from Investing your wealth the right way, heavenward. Now he's saying you have to guard your heart down here on earth in terms of your own contentment. Your own contentment. Kingdom or wants. This is verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is in you, the light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness? The whole idea here is talking in terms of the eye, um, in terms of your own greed. If you're greedy, the eye is a picture of a window pane that's smeared. It's a smeared window pane. You're driving along on the Seward Highway and the splash of mud breakup is coming on and you don't have any wiper fluid and you're smearing it, then there's no light really coming in and out. That's the picture of what's going on. And if your eye is greedy, if your eyes are down here on earth, if your mission in life is to stockpile and store up for earth, and that's where it ends. The, the, the world and the earth here is the cul-de-sac of your own heart. and You're not going heavenward or, or going out to try to win people to Christ If you don't care and all you care about is you, then everything darkens up inside. The picture is greed. It's greed. How does this work? The eye is the lamp of the body, verse 22 says. It's a pick a window into our souls. When you look into somebody's eye who is greedy, oftentimes you see some darkness that's there. Light comes through when it's clear and healthy. The Proverbs said said as much with this. Um, Proverbs 23, 4, and 7. 
Because the context here is the storehouse and greed is the sin. And so that's what Jesus is building on here. He's not going into a new topic in verse 22. He's building right on the immediate context of your treasure being in heaven, not on earth. If it's on earth, the, the lamp is out inside. Proverbs 23, 4 through 7. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. desist. When your eyes light on it, It is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. That word who is stingy, that's a Hebrew word for an evil eye. Don't eat bread with somebody who's going to give you something with strings attached to it. They're stingy. It says, do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating, saying, eat and drink. And he says, but his heart is not with you wants to get you. He's stingy. He wants something back for what he's giving you. He's trying to entrap you like a bad credit card scheme. He wants you to go into discontentedness. Proverbs 28, 22, a stingy man, a man with an evil eye hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. There was a rebuke in Deuteronomy 15, 9. Incidentally, it was the, the year of Jubilee. Every seven years, the um, statute of limitations um, came into effect where someone who owed money would be forgiven that money. A poor person who owed money, according to the law, at year seven, the year of Jubilee would be released. And the warning here, Moses says, is take care lest you be an unworthy, uh, there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye looked grudgingly. You have an evil eye on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Talking about canceling debts. There's the old um, kind of fabled story of the little boy who put his hand greedily into a, uh, a vase. It was a very costly vase and he couldn't get his hand out and so the parents are scrubbing and using lubricant and soap and water try to get it out and finally they were going to smash it and he was terrified of having that smash around his wrist and right as they pull the hammer back they said we have no other recourse he says you know would it help if i let go of the coin that i had grabbed inside the vase perhaps if i opened my hand i could slip it out i know it's a little bit goofy but makes the point Um, Jesus is actually warning of something greater than just being dark in terms of your personality. Look at verse 23. It says, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. You see that? Look at the repeated phrasing. If then light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? I think it's a warning that hell can send you or greed can send you to hell. Jesus is saying choose God or hell. Choose light or You'll be in darkness. Unrepented of greed sends you to hell. That's what this is saying. That's what Jesus is alluding to. All right, let's go to the final choice. The final line in the sand, this is verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. No one can serve two masters. These are aphorisms or axiomatic statements. They're self-attesting statements. You can't be wholly devoted to two masters at the same time. It's logically impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. You say, yeah, I can. No, you really can't. Just by virtue of what it means to be wholly devoted to one means that you can't be wholly devoted to two at the same time. You'd be split in half. 
And he's saying that's a very dangerous thing to try to pull off where you're, you're trying to serve two masters at the same time. And it's the picture of trying to serve God and your money at the same time. It's trying, trying to run the rat race of Christianity where you're like, oh man, I'm going to do it on a treadmill and a performance um, mechanism and try to you know, outrun my own guilt on a treadmill while I nurse this habit of money lust. It's being split in half and torn apart. It's like a person who gets married who doesn't all the way leave and cleave from his parent or parents and is divided between two masters trying to serve your wife and trying to serve your parents at the same time that will break you in two and it puts every relationship at risk. If you look at verse 24, no one can serve two masters, two masters, two curioi, two lords. You can't have two lords for either you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be perceived as loving one so much and you're trying to serve both that you're perceived as hating the other. In other words, that relationship goes wrong with one or the other. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It just doesn't work. It is logically impossible. It's practically impossible. It does not work. Money, you can't. Mammon, you can't. Jesus told this in front of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees wholeheartedly, out loud, disagreed with Jesus. Now, this picture of the Pharisees is actually different than I have projected at points where I'm thinking of Pharisees looking, you know, robed and, you know, fastidious with the law and those who would go without. Well, the Pharisees were actually moneyed. They were more like the health and wealth gospel preachers. Listen to what it says here. Luke 16, 13, no servant can serve two masters for he'll either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, there's that word, money lover, they loved money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And they said to them, and he, Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That's the false religion of um, self-performance and What our church really, um, not just our church, but what churches have been indicted of by God, it's trying to justify yourself, self-justification. But God knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So here's here's the principle. If you raise money up as a God, you lower God down in terms of who he really is. In your mind, if money is up, God is down. You cannot serve two masters. You can't say, I exalt the Lord and believe in his mission and want hearts to change. And so I'm gripping and holding on to money and storing it up so I can have my best life right now. Yet this does not work. You can't be an idolater and a God worshiper at the same time. It just doesn't work. The children of Israel tried to do it in Exodus 32. They made the golden calf. That first generation that was laid low in the wilderness, they stumbled They made a golden calf. They melted all their gold down, their jewelry into a mold, and out came the calf. And they turned aside quickly out of their way, Exodus 32, 8. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were equating the golden calf with Yahweh. It just doesn't work. And it's it's self-condemning to do that. Money lovers are idolaters like this. Covetousness, all covetousness is idolatry. 
And I'm preaching to myself. This is foundational. This is hitting to the core of who we are. You remember the story of 1 Samuel 5, 1 to 8, the um, fish god that um, the Philistines worshipped. They were worshipping this god, the head of a fish and the body of a man. And they put the Ark of the Covenant. They had stolen it and taken it. And they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon, the fish god. And the next morning, it says the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it in the house of Dagon, set up beside Dagon. And it said, Behold, Dagon fell on his face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon, they put him back in his place. And when they rose early the next morning, Dagon fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, but the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Just the whole point, you can't have idolatry and God in the same conversation. There's a great missionary named C.T. Studd, notable missionary. He was a famed athlete as a cricketer um, for Cambridge. He played um, um, high school cricket um, as the captain of Eton College and then um, was a Cambridge cricketer, um, expert player by 19, but more importantly, he became a Christian at 18. He'd been raised in a wealthy home with two other brothers. His father had um, gotten his riches and fortune in India. And so um, C.T. Studd had a lot growing up, but um, one day a preacher came to his house when he was preparing himself to go to cricket practice, whatever that looks like, putting it all together, and this preacher just looked at him square in the eye and said, are you a Christian? And at that point, C.T. Studd was convicted, went to his knees. He just said, I don't really have a good answer. You've, you've kind of read my heart, and he believed, he repented. The word of God had been dry and dead to him. It became alive to him. He was excited about Jesus. He then backslid for six years, which is a common story. People do that. And then, um, but then came back around and, and joined what was called the Cambridge Seven in Cambridge as a student um, with fellow young men. And they sat in a chapel underneath um, Hudson Taylor, who was the leader of the China Inland Mission, who would dress in, uh, as Chinese in Chinese garb and grew his hair out and the whole deal. And they just went, we're in. It's all in. We're going all the way to China, like in the 1800s. He was born in 1860, and so it was um, 1885. So at 25, he goes to China, and he's there. And not soon after that, um, his dad, uh, uh, I guess, either died or something, but his, the will that he, where he had left a large sum of money to um, C.T. Studd was, was given to him. So he, he got word while he was on the mission field that he was suddenly wealthy. And I think it was because he turned 25, not because his dad died, but he got a bunch of money. And what he did instead of that is he gave it to, uh, he said, he said it would be a fool's plunge for me. He was a single guy on the field. He said it would be a fool's plunge for me to take it. So I'm going to give, you know, 500 lire to um, Moody, 500 lire to George Mueller and his mission and his orphanage and 15,000 pounds to other missions. Then he had 3,400 pounds left to himself. He found an Irish girl on the mission field, married her and gave that to her as an investment. He wrote this to his mother when he went on the mission field. He said, Mother, dear, I do pray, God, um, to show you that it is such a privilege to give up a child to be used of God to saving poor sinners who never even heard the name of Jesus. This is what he wrote as a poem, and we sing it in times of uh, sort of times that feel like these moments right here. Listen to this. It's only one life. 
Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind not, would not depart. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Listen to these last two lines. Oh, let my love with fervor burn and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 